Hey there, welcome to Subject Matter Season 4, where we're discovering how to build a strong company culture. We're learning from fast-moving founders and CEOs and how their cultures make customers want to work with them and talent want to work for them, in some cases completely remotely. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, the founder of Astutely, and our team is dedicated to supporting B2B leaders to build aligned company cultures at scale. And now, let's get into today's episode. Today's interview is with David Jay, the founder and CEO behind Warm Welcome, a company which helps businesses upgrade from boring text to personal video so they can build meaningful relationships that drive real revenue. David has bootstrapped several startups into multi-million ARR and is a firm believer in the bootstrapping model, as we will learn a little bit later. In this episode, you'll also learn about the limitations of written social media and why it doesn't facilitate in-person interactions effectively. We also discuss when is the right time to start investing in culture, because if you have a great company culture, but the company doesn't work, your culture isn't going to survive very long. And finally, we also learn why disc jockeys are the most disliked profession in America and what we can learn from them to be a better listener as a result. This is a great conversation. David is a fantastic communicator packed with insights, and I hope you enjoy this episode. David, welcome to Subject Matter. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Ben. I'm excited to be here. Now, you have just wrapped up a pretty big move from Oregon all the way to Florida, and you drove to add the cherry on top to the journey. And I can imagine that this is probably one of the more significant life decisions and events that you've made recently. So I'd love for you to start by talking us through what that decision-making process was like for something as significant as uprooting and moving home. Sure. Yeah, it was about as big of a move as you can do in the U.S. Uh, I guess we could have gone a little bit further south in Florida, but uh, it was a big trip. We went down from Bend, Oregon, all the way down to San Diego and then across the country to the Panhandle, which is kind of the top left part of Florida. And, you know, we started thinking through this a year ago, just from a business perspective, Florida, 0% income tax in Oregon is 10%. In California, it's up to 14 or 15% and probably going up. So the West Coast has gone a little bit wild with uh, their taxes and a little bit wild with a lot of other ideologies as well. That's kind of what started the thought process. And then, you know, over the last year, Oregon's been in rough shape. Portland's been rioting and just all sorts of chaos. And that's bleeding over into Bend. And so that was another thing that kind of motivated the move. But uh, it sure is nice to be down here. It's, it's open. You can kind of do what you want. Florida's big on personal freedom, personal responsibility. And that's the sort of culture that we wanted to live in less government control, more personal responsibility, I think is a good way to live. And so, yeah, made the move. I've been loving it and, uh, you know, still unpacking boxes and finding all sorts of random stuff that we probably don't need, but uh, we're glad to be here. Well, I'm happy that you are safe and sound in your new home. And some advice I actually 
heard from uh, another subject matter guest recently, Shaul Olmert. He shared on moving that things get worse before it gets better. You have to expect the dip in just about every aspect of life before you're going to start reaping the benefits. And one of the things that's interesting to me about the story you've just shared is how this was really a move motivated by wider market and economic forces. This wasn't just a kind of, oh, I like the look of Florida or I've got a specific person or business that I'm going to be working with. It was the the kind of wider stage. And as a society, I think we're going through a pretty big transition at the moment from this big force of the pandemic changing the way that we interact. And one of the things I know you're very passionate about is creating connection. And I thought next we could turn to one segment of society, which is our kids who are still in school. And for the last year or so, some of them have actually been out of school for a whole year. What do you think this is doing to the way that kids are learning to interact with their fellow humans? Yeah, that's been a a big topic of conversation, especially here in Florida, because Florida opened the schools back up and got things moving much quicker than than any other state. And one of the reasons was for the kids. Uh, It's so important for all of us to be around each other, right? I mean, this is a basic human need that we have. And there are obvious times when we can't do that. And we don't want people getting sick. We don't want people dying. You know, that's obvious to everybody. But the psychological, emotional, physical needs of of kids are really important. And so I think as soon as we realized that kids weren't getting COVID, they weren't passing COVID around. Once we got that information, I think most states, if not the whole entire world, should have gotten kids back together quicker. Now, of course, everyone's doing the best they can with information that they have. And so uh, I'm not here to knock on the choices. It's been a difficult time to figure all that out. But I think we're going to see this play out over the next couple of decades where these kids that were out of school for a year who were kind of taught to fear other kids, they were taught to fear other people. I think there's some stuff there that they're going to have to work through. And I hope that we can unwind that. We can help them with that because I think the fear is the most damaging piece of that. You know, kids shouldn't be walking around looking at every other person around them as a potential threat. They're not capable of handling that at this point. And so, yeah, I think it's going to be a big deal. And I don't know what that's going to look like, but uh, I know we're all going to have to kind of play a part in, in helping them realize that, hey, we messed some stuff up and we really shouldn't have instilled all this fear in each other, but then certainly not in our kids. And it does create a window, this idea of seeing humans as threats into toxic workplace culture and what that can look like. Because if you are part of a team and you're constantly convinced that another team person is out to get you, that there's a target on your back, like you're in a sales team that has a very toxic culture and you're convinced that everyone's just there to take deals from you or to close that number, well, you're not going to enjoy your work, let alone be that good at it, probably. And right. it seems like we, we've got a pretty good example of what that's going to look like in the playground. If kids are thinking that everyone else is a threat, 
well, they're not going to be able to form healthy connections themselves with other kids who typically are kind of more open and supposed to be playful. How have you approached this yourself? Because you're a father and I can imagine an important piece for you is retaining this sense of connection and not having your kids feel that people are a threat. How have you approached having or instilling in them or making them not forget the sense of childlike curiosity to connect that is prevalent in all of the kids that we have around the world? Yeah, so I have two boys, two and four, so they were preschool age, so they weren't disrupted in getting pulled out of school, which was good. Mm. But what we decided to do, and and of course there was a risk and a lot of unknown in doing this, is, is we said, you know, we're not putting masks on our kids. It's one of the reasons why we, we drove out here instead of flying, because on airlines they will demand that you put a mask on a two-year-old. And you expect the two-year-old to pull the mask up and down in between bites of their food. I mean, it's asinine. It's insanity. And so we said, we're not going to do that because that physical symbol, people walking around with masks and kids expecting to put masks on, like that's a problem for their learning, for their understanding of, of them and other people. Is this person smiling at me? Is this person that's friendly or not? Like, all the cues that we've had for generations are getting stripped away and the kids are, are learning that. And so that's what we said is, Hey, you know what? We're going to go to the park. Even when there's signs at the park saying park closed, you cannot be here, blah, blah, blah. We took our kids to the park. We let them play. And there was other families and more and more families started showing up and doing the same thing. And so these guidelines, mandates, laws, you know, people call them laws, these are things that we didn't agree with. And so we said, we're not going to play that game. You know, it wasn't a popular decision at times, but it was a decision that we made for our family. And um, I think it was the right one. And, you know, we drove all the way out here and that's a hell of a trip. When you look at driving from Oregon all the way to Florida with two kids, but we made the best of it and actually had a blast along the way. I got a big old Sprinter van, so it was a little more comfortable. But yeah, we didn't do that. We didn't let other people's fear dictate how we were going to live with with our family. I admire that, firstly. And and I do think as long as no one else is being put in danger, then you're free to operate the way that you want to operate and to to serve your families. And I think the, the nice thing about still taking your kids to the park and teaching them to integrate is that hopefully they won't have the same kind of loneliness and separation that I think a lot of people have experienced over the last year. Now, what's interesting to me is that I think as a society, we we are collectively realizing that loneliness is a pretty massive problem. It's not something you can kind of just discard. Connection is really like the essence of building good relationships together. But at the same time, I don't think we've reached this point where there's a real, at least in the West, like a really societal understanding that connection is that important. So what do you think is stopping people who are disconnected from realizing the problem that they have and to seek out ways that they could become less lonely. What do you think is getting in the way there? 
You know, another big experiment that we had in our world has been social media. And social media was all about connection, right? Connecting the world. And we've been so focused on more, 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 getting more friends, more likes, more comments that we've missed out on the goodness of uh, true relationship, true understanding when you sit down with another person, another soul that is going through life the same way that you are, or maybe differently than you are, but you're in it together, which has become a cliched phrase, I know. When we focus on less, less width and more depth, we have the chance of the actual power of relationship and the power of people in our lives. When we focus on more, you have a lot of connections, but they're all diluted, and you don't really know these people. They're just on your Facebook page. I think that's where we miss out on on so much. When all our interactions are even over Zoom or over you know social media or something like that, you do miss out on a lot of the human element. You get the information. You can share information across social media. You can share it across video meetings. You can share it mm. that way. But in terms of real human person-to-person interactions, we need to be pulled back together. This video stuff is great because it's getting us back closer to human-to-human. It's not just text. Text-based communication has gone so south, so bad. Uh, It goes so negative so quickly. Uh, Where video, you can disagree with somebody. I'm sure you and I disagree on some things, but we can have a much more civil conversation about those things over video or in person than we could if we're just typing, becoming these keyboard warriors uh, with each other. Yeah, totally. That's a nice segue to something I wanted to discuss with you today, which is the printing press. And the the printing press was invented 600 years ago. It really marked the beginning of how we started to communicate at scale. And up until very recently in modern history, it's been the way that we communicate ideas. Writing something, having that distributed in a pamphlet, in a book, nailed to the door of a church, whatever that is. But I know that you think there's a couple of problems with the written word, text, as you've just said, but kind of writing as a medium, as a way to create connection. Can you go a bit deeper into why there's issues with this style of communication and and why it lacks empathy? Yeah, the printing press really got us going down an interesting track. The scalability of it, we all became obsessed with that. And now there's a million ways to communicate with the written word, whether whether it's a post-it note, a text message, a tweet, a Facebook post, a book, a leather-bound journal, like those are all examples of the written word in multiple different forms. Now, what we're seeing, and everyone I think across the world can agree, you know, you open up Twitter, you open up Facebook, and so much of it is negative. And the written word tends to go negative really quickly because if I write something, and I post it, and you read it, chances are you're going to read it in somewhat of a critical point of view. You're going to read it in somewhat of a a negative state. And I think it's because 
most of the times that we've written something in our life, the feedback we get on it is some type of critique. You know, on Facebook, if you agree with something, you just click the like button and that's it. If you disagree, the only way to disagree is to comment back. So that's why the comment section is just turns into this horrible place is it's everyone that's disagreeing. And so the conversation goes negative. People like it if it's positive, but no one really pays attention to that. And now everything just goes negative. And so there's an immediate judgment on words. If I write a word, it's black and white text. You're going to read that and you're going to come up with your own understanding of what it is that I'm saying based on what you're thinking, feeling, and going through. I have no ability to know that you disagree. I can't see your facial expressions or your current state until you respond. And so when you respond, then I read that based on my current state and what I'm going through. And so it's really easy for these conversations to become fights and for things just to spiral downhill as we've seen blatantly over the last year. The idea that really sticks out to me and why the written word can be negative is what you've shared at the end is that there's no way of understanding how the word has been written. I can text and say I'm going to be 30 minutes late and you don't know if I'm fobbing you off or you don't know if that's the really most sincere heartfelt message that I've sent all week. The message looks the same and we interpret the written word depending on our own mental state. It's much more reliant on that. The, the caveat I would add to your argument is that because there is so much negativity on social media, a lot of the time our mindset when we're reading is this negative, ready to be provoked beast, if you like, ready to kind of jump at the keyboard and defend our points of view, which means that there's a connotation of writing being negative. I, th I think it's important to underscore that writing in and of itself doesn't create negativity. It's the environment that we have that primes our mindsets when we read to therefore lead to negativity. Yeah, I think you're right. The other thing is that we want to, as much as possible, remove judgment because what you've shared there of how I write something that might be a very different perception, there's a judgment that's happening there. And you, you alluded to uh, a second ago why this doesn't happen with video. And we, we're certainly seeing this switch from a lot of text-based communication to video. One of the things that video enables in my mind is not just a lower degree of judgment, but also you can see more nuances in the communication like facial expressions, voice inflections. Why do you think these kind of nuances are important when it comes to how we communicate with one another? Well, you nailed it when you talked about understanding. I can understand or I can know if you're tracking with me based on all the visual cues, not just from your response to it or your, your words. 
And so if I'm saying something and, and you start to squint and you look at me or you tilt your head, like all those are signs to me that, okay, maybe I need to clarify something. Or maybe I said something in a way that they're not understanding or they're disagreeing with or something like that. And when you take all of those away, even the tone of voice, like you gave the example earlier about being late for an appointment. If I asked you, oh, why were you late? That's very different than why were you late? You say those two things in two different ways. One's aggressive and upset. One's concerned and like, oh, hey, I want to, you know, was there an accident? Like, are you okay? Just the tone of voice, the nuance in that can change everything in a conversation. Or text, you don't get that. You get tons of defensiveness and then attacks coming back and forth. So how does this impact the way that you communicate with your team? You're running a tight team with warm welcome. And naturally, I can imagine that the, the product might be used internally to communicate as well, perhaps. What do you think is are the components of an effective video when it comes to internal communication and making sure that your message is being interpreted exactly as you would like it to be? It's difficult for sure. People are going to hear a message and they're going to always interpret it based on their current position. What's most important is that we start to see one another as humans again and not just information again. And and so when you put yourself on a video and you communicate through video or in person, people get that package. They're looking at you as a unique individual going through life and has all their their own issues, right? When you get a text-based email, you know, or you read something online, the humanization is all stripped out of it. There's no real person. All I see is a bunch of words. And the last words I read on Facebook made me really upset. So I come into all these words with that same sort of angst. Instead of looking at these words and and seeing the person behind them, right? Oftentimes you don't even know there's a person behind them until the very bottom of an article. And there's a little tiny picture of someone I can't even tell who they are. But if they were there sharing in a video, and I would say the more authentic, the better, for example, as we were moving here, we had all these pods that were packed up in Oregon and were shipped here. Well, the shipping company messed something up and we were having a tough time getting them delivered to our house. And it's like, it's moving. Moving is rated like the number one most stressful thing that, that people go through, right? So we're stressed. We stayed a long road trip. Anyway, I'm trying to get these pods delivered for multiple days. This is everything that we own is in these pods. And so I'm talking to the moving company. I finally get the GM on the phone. Like at first, all the GM would do is text back and forth with me. And it was getting aggressive. It was like I was getting pissed off, right? And so I'm like sending these aggressive texts. And I would call and it would just, it wouldn't even go to voicemail. It'd say voicemail box is full. So I couldn't even leave her a message. Finally, I get her on the phone and I'm like starting to lay into her a little bit. And she starts to like share back of what's happening on her side. And then I hear kids screaming in the background, everything going on, right? She's working from home now, apparently. And it was instant humanization of like, 
dude, this gal is going through it just like I'm going through it. My kids are screaming here. I'm trying to get them their stuff. Like (laughs) here she is trying to do the best she can. Yeah, they had some problems, but I hear her kids screaming in the background like this is a parent just like me who's having a rough day. And boom, takes it down a notch. Now we're the same. Now it's not me being mad at this company. It's me working with another soul that I have the opportunity now to care for, to relate with on a level that's not about moving boxes anymore. Once we got down to that level, we worked it out, got our paws delivered that night, and it was good. But it was a much better interaction than it would have been had that kid not been screaming in the background. So it's funny how these small pieces of life, when we don't sanitize everything and make it stale, we actually have better relationships in our personal life and better relationships in our business life. I think we can learn a lot from this in how we interact with our teams and also how we interact with our customers and our partners. Like procurement is a really good example of this. At my last startup I was working for, we had to go through ISO 2701 compliance, which is a long, grueling process. And in order to get procured, there were definitely some headaches to do that. But what would have been really valuable is learning from your story here to say, well, actually, everyone on this procurement team who's trying to support you is a human just like you are. They're going through their exact same set of challenges. And if you can empathize with that and be very real that your problems aren't the problems, they're just a set of problems within a much wider ecosystem or network, we can adjust our level. I don't think it's necessarily about like lowering our level so much as an adjustment so that you can actually see eye to eye with people. Yeah so important and so difficult to do the more remote the more isolated the more independent everybody is and so it's going to be a real struggle in the years to come as this work from home thing happens and company cultures are spread out you know leaders and ceos are going to need to really rethink the focus on efficiency because efficiency isn't going to be the problem anymore, right? The, the culture and the, the people, they need the connection to their coworkers and they need connection to leadership and they, they need connection to the contribution they're making with the work that they do. And a lot of those ancillary benefits to work are taken away in a remote culture. Video can be somewhat of a bridge to it. And I think that's good and helpful. But we're also going to need some some actual real life benefits that that are going to be new. They're, they're going to have to deploy those in new ways in this new work culture. Let's dig into that a little bit. So imagine you are having dinner with a founder and CEO of a company that is scaling. Let's say they have 40 employees right now and they are hiring. They've got product market fit. The wind is in their sales. And you're trying to communicate this insight of connection to them and that you don't need to think about efficiency. What you really need to think about is bringing your people together. And they say, okay, David, I'm in. How do I do that? 
what would you tell them? What would be the playbook for connection for them going into this new working world? First of all, I love that you define the stage of the company because I think a lot of people dive into company culture too early and they start doing a lot of these softer things that are very important, but they're only important once the company is working. And if you focus all on company culture and the company fails, well, guess what? Your culture now is dead. So I like that you define the stage and say, hey, after the company has succeeded and you've cared for the company enough, now you can work on how the company is going to care for the people so that the company can scale. Those are important distinctions that I think are, are missed in a lot of, uh, especially startup conversations and a lot of startup uh, especially venture-backed startups are terrible cultures because they're just creating more entitlement instead of actually teaching people the actual mechanics of life and business and how things work. So one of the key things that companies need to do is they need to shift the way that they're casting vision. You know, a lot of companies, the way they cast vision is 30 years outdated They'll have like a, an offsite meeting or they'll have some executive meeting and then they'll come back and they'll, they'll type it up and they'll email the entire company and say, here's our new vision, our new direction, blah, 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 blah. Well, the problem is that when you go through the company, through the organization, people get this email, which really should be the most important thing that they read like almost the entire year. They read that right next to a customer service request and it looks the same. It's a bunch of text and this one's a bunch of text and the customer service request is urgent and they've got to deal with it or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so they skim through this vision casting from their CEO and then they just get back to work and there's no ability to engage or to process that information. And so I think they're going to have to change that. They're going to have to become a lot smaller in the way that they cast vision. And they're going to have to cast vision in a way where people can actually engage with it. Casting vision is kind of like marketing. And a mentor of mine said, marketing isn't about pushing messages out. It's about pulling people in. That's what companies and CEOs need to be thinking about is, hey, how do we pull people in? How do we create this engaged workforce where People are not just waiting for orders or waiting to consume more information, but they're actually engaging with the company, not working for the company. They're engaging with the company. And that's a a big difference. When we think about efficiency, we oftentimes just want robots. But I think in order to make revenue, real revenue in the future, it's going to be relationally driven. So many interesting ideas there. The first thing is the importance of timing culture is a really salient point here to to understand when it's worth investing in the culture. As you say, there are times when it's too early, but there are also times when it's too late. And the ancient Greeks have this idea of kairos, which I love, which is that there's always a perfect opportune moment for something. And you need to know when that moment is as it pertains to your culture journey. When's the moment to to invest? To go maybe a level deeper on this and 
we can certainly come back to this this idea of softer connection and pulling people in in a second. How would you define that timing moment? Like, what is the the kairos for culture? What is, in your mind, if you think about the trajectory of a, a founder and CEO, their company, what are the signals that they should be looking for that then is a cue for them to say, okay, now we need to really be intentional about our investing in our culture? Yeah, well, I would say it's not binary. It's, it can be a fluid transition. I think the motivation stays the same, and that's what's key. The motivation is the company succeeding and the company growing. So when culture can be an accelerant to that, you invest more in it. And if you're at a company that requires more people in order to be successful, which I think in the new economy, it's going to be the case because it's going to be relationally driven. And people don't have relationships with robots. They have relationships with people. And so people are going to be drawn to companies that have really good people and people that they want to work with. When you're moving out of startup stage, you've proven the idea, right? That's a very turbulent time in the business. But as you're transitioning, you're saying, okay, now we're less about proving the concept and we're more about getting this concept moved through the world and we need more people to do that. Well, that's a time where investing in those people would make a lot of sense for the business, right? I'm not talking about doing it just to create a good culture. Like there's all these people, oh, we won this culture award and that culture award. And, you know, two years later, their company's dead. It's like, well, who cares? That the, sure. the point of creating a good company culture is to create a good company. And I think people lose sight of that especially when they're given millions of dollars in venture funding. And it's just like higher, 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 investing company culture when these awards like, man, these employees are not getting equipped and trained. They're not getting challenged to actually create a good company. They're not getting taught how to create a good company because the company never has to be profitable. You know, I've bootstrapped all of my companies and I think it's been really good because everyone that works there has to perform and they realize that there's consequences. And I think there's a generation right now that, you know, has been getting trophies for eighth place. And then they go into the workforce. Now they're in the workforce and they're working for this venture back company that doesn't need to make any money. And it's essentially just gambling. And these VCs will put a bunch of money in 10 different companies knowing that nine will fail. Well, the nine that fail had hundreds, maybe thousands of employees that now learned how to fail. They didn't learn how to succeed. And when people are hungry, they find ways to succeed. So I'm a big advocate of you know people eating what they kill. And if you don't kill anything, you don't eat. And pretty soon you figure out a way to go out and do something that works instead of just bouncing around from company to company in one failure after another. I don't think that does our society any good. What advantages do you think bootstrapping has offered in the way that you have set up Warm Welcome? So we've we've talked about the accountability of knowing that everything we bring in, there has to be food on the table and it, it makes people hungrier and more accountable to that. 
What else do you think that bootstrapping has offered you that perhaps wouldn't have been offered had you taken venture capital in order to scale Warm Welcome? Well, it's a different type of tension. So think of working out. When you're working out, you are tearing your muscles. You're going through this tension with the weights or with the exercise equipment, and that's creating strength. And that, I think, is a really good thing in the workforce, right? Is As you're growing a company, that tension should create strength. When you're venture-backed, you have a different type of tension because the VCs want returns in their money. So they are putting tension, but it's largely placed on the executive team to hit whatever numbers they're supposed to hit. And then that's pushed down, but it doesn't seem to be creating the personal responsibility from the people inside of the organization. There seems to be a lot of pressure at the top, a lot of stress at the top. So bootstrapped, you can kind of only grow as fast as your success because you can't hire another person because you don't have any money to hire them. So it creates a more distributed type of stress throughout the organization. You know, when you look at even the conversation today with entrepreneurs and CEOs and the conversation around mental health and the suicide problem we have is because I think in a largely venture-focused model, there ends up with a lot of isolation and pressure and stress at the executive level of these organizations. And it's too much. The organizations are failing. Look how many of them completely go belly up and the people are failing. That's, I'd say, a huge advantage is you actually have to create something that works You don't get away for creating things that don't work in a bootstrap company. And as it works, you can hire somebody new for that to work more. And that's a healthier way to scale rather than this kind of forced scaling that the VC model often pushes people into. And what do you think that a founder or CEO who has gone down the venture capital path, let's say they've raised a series A round of 10 million. So they're, they're committed, but they, again, they, they hear about this idea of distributing stress through the organization and the other benefits that bootstrapping offers. Is there anything that that CEO could do or could learn from bootstrapping that would positively benefit their scaling organization. The longer you can go without putting yourself under that sort of pressure, the better the organization will be. The more you can keep your focus on building a good company instead of raising more money so that somebody else can pay for this company. I think those are our key things to think about, right? And when the initial goal like right after you have an idea is how do I go get money for this idea? How do I go get somebody else to give me money for this idea? Like it changes that CEO or that entrepreneur's mindset of, Hey, my whole life is going to be about going out and asking venture capital to give me money instead of how do I create something really valuable? And when I create something really valuable, 
people will come and offer me some money for it. It's a different thing. It's kind of like, you know, putting the cart before the horse, in my opinion. Like, go do something, show that it works. And I think we should be having a longer term approach and saying, hey, why does venture capital so often tie people to like these 12 or 18 month timelines? Like, they're wanting stuff back quick, fast. And I think that is somewhat of a, a disservice to a lot of organizations that could be really good. They just need a little bit more time. Like maybe the idea was just too early. It doesn't need to die. It just needs a little bit more time to grow. You know, if somebody is already in that game, it's tough to get out of, right? Because once you go under that gun, you're under the gun. It's kind of a do or die scenario. The longer that you can go without taking on capital gives you a lot more leverage when you do. And again, I'm not against it. I just think the the model needs to be adjusted a little bit and slowed down. I think the venture capitalists need to have a little bit more longer term thinking rather than these like quick successes. And so much is focused on like being the next Facebook or Google instead of like, where's the opportunity to go get capital to build a great company that gives returns over the course of a decade? Seems reasonable. That should be, I think, more of entrepreneur's focus. It's interesting. Like there's definitely shades to success. And I think we're we're so colored with this idea of like all or nothing almost at the highest possible stages and injection of capital definitely proliferates that that in a lot of these cases it would benefit from thinking through the idea stress testing it and having opposing points of view as well and one of the things that you have shared uh, last time we spoke is this idea that podcasts can be a model for productive conflict can Mm. you explain what you mean by this framework and how someone who has a podcast or who listens to them could potentially implement this podcasting because it's human to human right it's you and i talking about something there's opportunity for nuances opportunity for understanding if i say something that doesn't quite sit well with you i can often know that just by your facial expressions But if not, you can ask a clarifying question and I can clarify what I meant because what I said and how you interpreted it might not have actually been what I meant by that. And as we get to know each other more and more, you know where I'm coming from, you know, you know, my background or my heart for things, you could help me clarify what I'm saying. We need that as a culture. We need the opportunity to listen and social media there's no listening there's just people typing and this person's saying something to this person this person's saying something to that person whereas a podcast there's a little bit of a bridge there where as i'm sharing something you're having to listen to that to understand it and then you can ask some questions back as you're sharing something I'm listening. And I think that needs to be modeled more in our culture. I think one of the the themes I'm picking out here is 
in giving ourselves more time to respond and understand the messages that we hear. So if we go right back to texting that we spoke about towards the start of this conversation, you really have to fight to slow down in a response to a text, especially if you're angry or an angry tweet or social media post. The podcast format bakes in that time to respond for you. And so the challenge for everyone listening is can you bake in this time to really critically think through what the other person is saying before you respond, before you make that emotional reaction that wrenches you in one direction that you might regret later down the line. And I think we can do this with the mediums we have, with video, but it does take that intentional reflection that has to be a very conscious habit. It's not something that happens subconsciously. It's an intentional thing. And when you think of counseling or you think of people with that gift of healing, they spend a lot of time listening. You go and see a counselor and chances are they don't say that much, but you leave that room knowing yourself better, understanding yourself better, more at peace because somebody listened to you. And we're living in a culture that just doesn't listen. There's a lot of talkers. There's a lot of typers. There's actually a book written on this. Uh, one of my mentors, Tim Sanders, he wrote a book called The Likeability Factor. And in that book, there was a case study on the most unlikable group of people in the world. This was 10 years ago, but the most unlikable group of people in the world were radio disc jockeys. So no way. it was these people <laughs> who spend their life talking. Bop, 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 bop. So nobody liked to be around them. No one wanted to work with them. That's why the radio world went to syndication, where you had a few radio disc jockeys through the entire country, and they syndicated that to all the networks because nobody liked these people. Well, now we have a generation of podcasters and social media keyboard warriors so a lot of people talking, a lot of people typing. Well, the opportunity there is to, you know, zig when everybody's zagging and be someone that listens, be someone that cares, you know, the things that you talk about, be someone who empathizes. And you can't really do that if you're always talking. <laughs> so things like this, where we have a two-way conversation and we can model that, is a, a good thing. I think people that just pop out, open their microphone and just yap away for an hour, I think that's a bad type of podcast. I think this is a, a much better type of podcast and we're seeing it move to this. Five years ago, podcasters just talk, 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 talk. It was one guy or one gal sitting in their office just shooting their mouth off and there's still a lot of that, but it's moving much to a much more conversational type of platform. I think that's a, a really good, healthy thing. I like this framing of moving from one-way communication to two-way conversations. And whether that is on a podcast, whether that is just talking to your users, getting feedback on your product or on your marketing, being able to listen to their needs as well is such an important part of this two-way dialogue that we're, we're building. That's a great place for us to leave it today, David. This has been 
Fantastic. And if people want to find you online, they want to keep up with you, where are the best places for them to follow you and follow your journey? Yeah, they can go to, to LinkedIn. You know, I'm spending less and less time on, on Facebook and zero time on Twitter. I think those places are going downhill fast. But also just go over to warmwelcome.com and send me a video. That's, I think, the funnest way because then I get to see you. I get to understand you better and I can send you a video back. So that's a fun way to do it. Uh, we can set up a time to, to chat. That's the best. I'd much rather hear from you personally than through uh, social media. Awesome. You heard it here first, guys. Go and send David a video. David, thanks so much for your time. It's been fantastic. Thanks, Ben. Hey, it's Ben here. Just before you head off, one quick thing. This podcast teaches you the skill of empathetic communication. And if you're interested in accelerating your empathetic communication and to start applying it to your brand and business, we've created an actionable five-step checklist which breaks down the exact steps you need to take to unlock this skill and start creating messages that connect with your customers and employees' heads and hearts. You can download it for free over on our website, weareastutely.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for another episode of Subject Matter.